This week's episode of Powder Keg is brought to you by Developer Town. By leveraging their years of experience working with startups, Developer Town is able to help companies better understand the viability of potential software solutions and quickly bring them to market. Developer Town has created proven sprint to market processes so large enterprises can move like a startup. You can find out more at developertown.com slash powder keg. Again, that's developertown.com slash powder keg. Developer Town, start something. Welcome to Powder Cake Igniting Startups, episode 35, the show for founders and innovators who are building tech companies decidedly outside of Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and I'm back from a couple week hiatus. So if you're still listening, thank you for sticking with me. I promise you it is worth it. Uh, what we've been doing is we've been focusing on how to take this show live. And this is our first test in taking the show live. And what that means is we actually live stream this entire interview on Facebook. So you can find it at facebook.com slash powder keg, or just go to Facebook and type in powder keg, and you can find this particular episode uh, where we're live streaming these. I'm really excited with how this came out because we had two amazing guests. Our first guest is Santiago Jaramillo, founder and CEO of Amplify, which is an employee engagement SaaS company that is just killing it. Now, Santiago is a serial entrepreneur. He had his own consulting agency. He sold another SaaS company for over $8 million. He is amazing. He's been in this community of Powder Keg and Verge for literally five or six years. I, I knew him when he was coming down to Verge events in Indianapolis uh, when he was still in college and just uh, growing his consulting business at the time. A very inspiring entrepreneur and had some amazing insights on how to grow as a leader and how to use your financial model as well as your financial dashboard to help direct and lead your company. Now, that leads me to my second guest who is just the foremost expert on how to use your finances and accounting models and all of your processes to help run your business. Not just run and keep it afloat, but how to really grow it. And I'm talking like hockey stick growth. And we get into all of that with our other guest, who is Tom Gabbert. And he is the founder and managing partner of an amazing accounting firm called M accounting. They've helped literally hundreds of technology companies grow their business by helping them with their financial model, helping them manage their books, helping them with their taxes, helping them prepare their company to raise capital. And we get into all of that in this one single episode. But before we dive in, I want to make sure I tell you about a resource that we put together with M Accounting based on some of the things we talk about in this episode. So that resource is actually a financial checklist. This is something that all founders, or all people thinking about starting a company, maybe even someone that is a leader in a company should be looking at because it's going to help you better understand how to manage your company growth and its financials. And we've put that together in a handy free guide. You can get it by going to vergehq.com slash financial dash checklist. I know that's a little bit tricky, but vergehq.com slash financial dash checklist. We'll also include it in the show notes, which we will put at powderkeg.com for this episode, episode 35. Now, again, we get into financial models, we get into leadership, we get into some of the common mistakes that founders and leaders make when building out their companies or building out their divisions as they are growing and scaling high growth tech companies. Uh, very interesting conversation, lots of great case studies and real life examples here. So strap in, I think you're gonna enjoy this one. Let's set this thing off. 
Uh, I am super excited because we have uh, amazing guests here. This will be episode 37 of the podcast, episode one of our first live stream ever. Uh, I pulled in the, the, the big guns here. We've got uh, founder and managing partner of M Accounting, Mr. Tom Gabbert with us. We also have Santiago Jaramillo, the founder and CEO of Amplify. Um, two amazing companies, one, a, a service uh, company that has helped dozens, if not maybe pushing past the hundreds now. We are past the hundreds. Of, yeah. of tech companies <laughs> uh, grow and scale their businesses from a financial standpoint um, and amplify, of course, helping empower teams to be better connected, um, grow together as, and grow the culture as they grow their team. And both of these guys are going to be able to do a better pitch of their companies than I just did. But I first want to say welcome to the show. Tom, Santiago, thank you so much for being here with us. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. We've got Great to be here, Matt. Thanks. And we've got Tom in studio, and we have Santiago here that we're uh, patching in from uh, headquarters of Amplify. Santiago, where is Amplify headquartered? Uh, we're in Fishers, uh, Indiana, right downtown Fishers. Can you tell me a little bit about Fishers and, and what that community is all about up there? Sure. So actually, uh, John Wexler and, and the mayor uh, created this vision for Fishers to be an entrepreneurial city. Um, other suburbs and, and, and cities around us have kind of chosen, um, you know, where they're going to really invest and where, where they see the, the future uh, for the city going. And, and where Fishers sees the city going is, is this entrepreneurial city model. And so they've actually got entrepreneurship education in elementary schools. Uh, they've got Launch Fishers where the city donated 20,000 square feet of the basement of the library that was underutilized and created a co-working space where now literally hundreds and hundreds, I think their past member like 400 and 500, um, uh, basically create an environment where it's really low cost of entry, really low friction for a business to get started. It's a new play on economic development. So um, Fishers is really supportive of the entrepreneurial ecosystem uh, here in central Indiana. And uh, I was actually Fishers, uh, Launch Fishers member number one um, and and saw the growth of Launch Fishers from an idea that John Wexler um, and, and the city had to seeing as, as now one of the largest co-working spaces um, uh, in the country. And so it's been really amazing to see that Fishers tech ecosystem and kind of central Indiana, in my opinion, is anchored by sort of the downtown Indianapolis sort of density of tech companies and then um, balanced by by the density of, of, of startup activity happening in Fisher. So it's, it's a really exciting uh, place to be. Well, and you've been able to reach some amazing success with Amplify there. Uh, obviously, you have your own headquarters now in a new space outside of Launch Fishers. You've grown so much. Um, can you get, give us maybe uh, the 30-second overview of uh, some of your bigger milestones you've achieved here in the last couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we started off as Bluebridge, uh, built the world's largest tourism app platform, powering the apps for Denver, Colorado, Atlanta, Georgia, and the country of South Africa, and, and the second largest church tourism app platform. So we sold both of those in November and decided to go all in on the third market that we were focused on being employee engagement, helping uh, leaders in, in, in corporate settings, help, uh, create more engaging environments to help uh, retain employees and, um, and create Better, better environments for those employees. And so um, for us, Amplify, it's been amazing. It's growing three times as fast as Bluebridge ever grew. Um, we got to a million in ARR um, in just a couple of quarters. Um, We've now, since then, um, you know, more than more than doubled it in the past uh, few six months. We're serving tens of thousands um, uh, of folks um, you know, combined on our on our technology and, and, and impacting the lives of, of thousands and thousands of employees. Um, so for us, uh, that's really exciting, and Amplify is now larger than 
the church or tourism business ever was in, in a third of the time. Um, so for us, we're, we're really thrilled to, to, to not just be in an opportunity where there's such a huge and massive business opportunity, right? The total adjustable market for employers who have uh, employees and, and want to better engage them uh, is massive, but it's also a really meaningful mission in the sense that um, we have the opportunity to improve and our BHAG is actually to improve the lives of one million people by helping them experience more meaningful work. Uh, and we're, we're on our way to, to reaching uh, those million employees and, and really improving their life. They, they, we all work half of our waking lives. And if we can make that a little bit better um, uh, for a person, then, then I think that has a huge payoff for the person and, and certainly for the company. Well, and congrats on all that success, Santiago. It's been really cool to watch. Uh, obviously, we were there to, to kind of help uh, announce the rebrand. Uh, you helped us build our app for Verge and Powder Keg, which is awesome. Uh, we love that. And uh, one of the cool things I think about our two guests here today is that you guys have worked together in the past um, during some of the scaling points of Blue Bridge and then Amplify. Tom, and, and you're headquartered uh, here in Indianapolis. That's right. Yeah. Worked with so many of these tech companies that now are just uh, booming. The The whole entrepreneurial market is just booming here in, in technology. And you've worked with a lot of them. What, can you tell me a little bit about what you've seen here in Indianapolis? I'll, I'll tell you what. We have we have seen explosive growth in Indianapolis, particularly in the last five years. But it's, it's really fun to watch. I mean, working with companies like like Amplify, we knew them as Blue Bridge back in the day, um, and watching, you know, just the progression of, you know, that company and all that they've achieved, it's really rewarding and fun for us. Um, we tell people that we are a professional service firm that really wants to be a tech company. We <laughs> we we love the technology space. We work with, as you have mentioned, we work with a lot of tech companies. Probably comes a little bit from my personality and my background. Uh, I am a, I am a gadget guy. I love the new and shiny. I love tech. I embrace. Do you remember it. when you first got into tech? What what was it? Was there like one product or was there one moment when you picked up a piece of technology and were like? Yeah, this is cool. Yeah, you know what? It, it actually go, it goes back to before my M accounting days. I was the CFO at Eshent. Um, for the for the old timers out there, they'll remember the Eshent story. And um, what was Eshent? Well, Eshent was a consumer electronics company that was cutting edge in its day. They were um, developing set-top boxes that managed your music and your DVD collection, and it was really cool stuff. I mean, it, it sounds uh, you know pretty old school right now, but um, it, it was cutting edge, it was cool, and I loved it. And I just loved the vibe and the energy that you got in an entrepreneurial tech setting. So that was with Scott Jones, right? It was. And that inventor was a Scott, voicemail. Absolutely. That yeah. was a Scott Jones company. And it was really fun uh, to be part of that. And I, I worked for Scott for about four years. And awesome. I, I, I reached a point where um, I saw the natural conclusion to Eshent coming. We're in the process of selling it. And I, I decided it was time to leverage the experience that I had and go start my own thing. And I wanted to focus on entrepreneurial companies because I just I love the energy and the passion that entrepreneurs have. It's just it's infectious, um, and they're they're glasses half full people. I mean they just love uh, they're they're optim optimistic folks, and I wanted to be part of that, and I wanted to help them in any way I could. So. We recognized the need for um, accounting services, and particularly at the time, it was CFO services. There was a need for entrepreneurial companies who were looking for that strategic level thinking, strategic level advice as they were scaling their companies. And there really wasn't a good place for them to turn. Um, they were um, going to the traditional CPA firms and not knocking those guys at all. They're excellent at what they do, but they just weren't wired for that kind of work. And so um, anyway, we decided to start a firm that was focused on that 
that piece of it, you know, the, the forward looking, the strategic, the really being a part of their team. So we started them accounting with that in mind, really on the CFO side. Yep. And it, it very quickly evolved into bookkeeping and controllership. We had clients saying, hey, love the model, but we'd like for you to just come in and help us get our bills paid too. Could you do that? <laughs> so anyway, today, fast forward, we're 14 years into this and we do everything from bookkeeping to controllership to CFO services for companies. And That's awesome. Spend a lot of time with the folks in the tech world and we, we, we love it. That's the fastest growing part of our business. Well, and I, I appreciate you sharing the, the perspective because I think you're going to have so much insight into some of the topics we want to dive into today. I mean, obviously, um, I, I can relate to both of you guys being a, a founder of a, of a couple of startups, some, uh, some successful, some not so much. Um, and <laughs> you learn a lot from the, you failures learn a though. lot from the failures right, and you absolutely. learn a lot from, um, trying to manage everything from your right. inbox and from spreadsheets, yep. <laughs> uh, and, and, and trying to figure out QuickBooks on your own. Um, Santiago, do you remember when, uh, you first reached out to Tom or M accounting and, and decided you wanted to outsource some of the financial side of things? I do. I think our actual our first engagement was building a financial model. Yeah. Um, so really almost at the highest level of financial strategy, right at that CFO is where we started. And uh, we actually worked down uh, um, <laughs> over time in sort of the services uh, that we partnered with uh, with M Accounting, but it was that, that, that strategic side. And for us, it was Okay, we think we have a business, um, and I think we're ready to put fuel in, in it in, in terms of outside funding. And we want to make sure that the math adds up, that we're actually sort of, if we can bring in money, that we can deploy that capital and not just burn it uselessly, but actually sort of create value at the end of the I'm day. I'm sure your investors appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and, um, you know, I probably probably wouldn't have raised, you know, funding without a solid financial model. Uh, in fact, I got a lot of comments during the fundraising that one of the things that uh, helped de-risk investments for our investors was how well thought out our financial model was. Now, it, it, at the at the the simplest sense, of course, a financial model is understanding what the inputs are for the business, what are the costs uh, of it, and making sure that if you put a dollar in, you get more than a dollar out when you put it through the, the entire business model and the entire machinery. If you don't, then you put more money into it, it's just going to make the losses bigger, right? And so for us, <laughs> if we were putting in a dollar, we were, we were getting more than a dollar out. Uh, looking at our historicals and all of our assumptions, we were able to then be able to predict the future by learning from our past. And so if we know that various assumptions, you know, here's our average deal price, here's our conversion rate, here's what it costs us for every deal, here's what it costs to service it, here's the profit from each deal. And then being able to programmatically scale that in a model made us confident that A, we were ready for financing and B, helped us actually get the financing and, and know how much to raise um, even. And so for us, that was our first engagement uh, with M Accounting. And I remember looking at many folks and the reason why we chose M Accounting is because there is something unique about um, a SaaS business, about a technology business. Um, you just think about things differently. Um, you know, you don't have any, uh, typically any sort of physical inventory. Uh, you don't have that much assets. You're uh, in, in this high growth mode. And so um, sort of typically high software margins. And so it's a very unique um cost model, just financial model. And we wanted somebody that had been there, done that many times, that it wasn't their first time building a, a financial model for a SaaS company, but this was their 10th or their 20th. And M Accounting fit the bill and, and um, we were able to, to raise, um, We were I think we started raising 500,000 in our very first round and we were so oversubscribed that we ended up raising a million. Hey, that's a good problem to have. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would like to dive into that this uh, actual particular case study a little bit more um, and, and get your perspective on it, Tom, sure. because I think it's so interesting to dive into real, you know, real opportunities and real business models. Um, just from a learning aspect, it makes so much sense. So I want to encourage anyone who's listening on the live stream right now to share this with their feed, share this with their friends, because the more we can get this knowledge out there for other founders to understand, or even would-be founders to understand what it takes to put together a financial model right. that you can actually base a fundraising, uh, a fundraising round off of, and and build you know a company like Amplify from a very um, uh, practical standpoint, how do you have a model where you, to Santiago's point, put a dollar in and get more than a dollar out? Right. What, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see, Tom, when uh, entrepreneurs first attempt building out uh, a model? You know, I think they don't put enough detail in it. I think they start at too high a level. Um, you know, and, and let me back up a step and just say that, you know, I, I think so many folks get started with a financial model because they've been told they have to have this thing called a financial model in order to go <laughs> raise money. And, you know, what, what we found is that the folks that really embrace it and get into it uh, discover it's much more than just a tool you use to, you know, hand over to investors. It is a tool that you will use on a regular basis to support decision making. And that's the power of it, really. If you've done it right and constructed it right, you're going you're gonna to have your variables isolated and you're going to be able to do some what and some sensitivity analysis to really understand, you know, what are the key drivers of the business, you know, and what are the things that I need to watch for? And so back to your question about, you know, the, the common mistakes, the, the biggest one is is not doing it at a detail level, I think. I mean, and what are the details that might get overlooked uh, usually in a business model? Like let, let's take a SaaS business for yeah, instance. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of times – you know, people start with revenue and then they they kind of work backwards and, you know, that's that's okay. But I think you, you often overlook some of the, the, the critical expenses that, you know, come along with that. Um, so what I tell people is, you know, start with your uh, general ledger account detail. You know, actually get a good chart of accounts. If you don't have one, you know, work with an advisor who can give it to you because it's going to force you to think about the things that maybe you're overlooking. For the for the non-financially savvy uh, founders out there, <laughs> yeah. what is a chart of accounts? Yeah, Just sorry, from a, from I'm, a, I'm doing accounting speak on you. No, no. I think it's it's really important for founders to get this financial literacy in right. terms of how to understand corporate finance and how their business works. But so often founders are focused on the product and right. the customers and they're learning their industry lingo. Right. Uh, yeah. Maybe you could help us ed- yeah. educate oh, us a little bit. So on chart of accounts, accounts is, you know, if you think about your accounting system, it's it's the line item coding that you put in as you enter an expense, it's picking the, the appropriate account. So your chart of accounts is just the collection of all of those various accounts, if you will. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, it's it's having, having a thorough chart of accounts is going to help you, believe mm-hmm. it or not, as you do your modeling, because there's going to be things on there that you don't, you may not think of right off the bat. And it's going to force you if you're, if you're budgeting or you're preparing a model at that level, it's going to force you to think about it. Yep. One real example of that, that M Accounting helped us with is we had built a very um, elementary model ourselves. We understood the value of that. My, my co-founder, Mitch Shields, was a huge proponent of a financial model. And, and, and at the, I think, think of the beginning, I was like, we've got to have one because we've got to raise money. But I didn't realize how crucial of an important tool it was, how central. I mean, it's the brain of the entire company. <laughs> it's how you do decision making. It's if we're going to go down this path, 
it's a huge path. Let's model it out and see what that future is going to look like and compare it with this other path and compare it 12 months down the road. And you're able to sort of like almost create two futures and then at the end of 12 months, compare them to each other. And that helps you make better decisions. Absolutely. So one interesting example of one thing that I, we overlooked, uh, and this is one small thing is, you know, there's a sales uh, expense for a salesperson, right? And then there's a sales management expense. And we had built, you know, of course, here's how much a salesperson costs and how much they can sell. One thing that we weren't thinking about is like, you know, we had like 20 sales reps modeled out in, in a couple of years down the road and we had no sales management assumption mm -hmm. as in like, we just assumed that like these sales reps would self-organize. Obviously <laughs> that always happens, right? <laughs> like, you know, we have sales managements and sales directors and a VP of sales, but we just hadn't thought about it. And because there was a, an account for sort of sales management, it made us think, Oh, every six reps, we're going to have to hire a sales manager. And so just put that, programmatically in, you know, every sixth hire, hire a sales manager, right? That's an example of a chart of accounts, something that you might not oversee because you don't need a sales manager today. You have two sales reps, um, but you don't realize that pretty soon you'll have 20. And if you don't create that management layer, you'll be significantly um, undershooting your expenses. So, you know, Santiago's hit, that's a great example. And he's hitting, he's hitting on another point that I wanted to make. So, you know, calling out your variables as yeah. you're building one of these models is so important. I mean, you just mentioned, you know, the six to one ratio. Um, that's a variable that you should pull out. And I think that's another common mistake that a lot of folks make as they're building their own models is they, they bury those assumptions in formulas and you, and, and it's very hard to one, see them, remember them, and then change them and do some sensitivity. And in my opinion, that's the power of building a, a good financial model is that you, pull your variables out, you identify them, you pull them out and you're, and you're able to play with them and see, you know, what are, what's the range of outcomes that I get as I change these. And I, I think that that's, that's a really great point. Looking at this as the equation and variables in that. And, and one of the most important variables is obviously how you're making money. Right. Where, where, where's the revenue coming from? What right. are the revenue streams? And I, I think Amplify, Bluebridge is a great example because there's a lot of ways that you could have made money. I, I know Santiago, your original business started almost in like custom app development, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and there are a lot of different ways you can make money in app development, right? You could go and make your own apps and sell games. You could continue to create custom one-off apps for big corporations, or you could go the route that you ended up going and creating a platform and a system where yeah, I would imagine code base stays the same in a lot of ways. And that helps you have, uh, save some cost on development on every single app starting from the ground up. Um, and, and it also gives you an opportunity to save on cost in sales and marketing costs. Um, can you, can you talk me through that thought process there of, um, all the different ways you could make money and how you decided to go all in on uh, what you're doing now with employee engagement? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for us, uh, we started in, in custom mobile app development very, very early on. And, and that was simply, I had a thesis that mobile and specifically mobile apps would absolutely explode, that it had already smartphone usage and consumer apps had already sort of exploded and almost sort of hit, hit their peak of hype. Um, but businesses, corporations hadn't yet quite embraced apps to, to the degree that I knew they would. So I, I kind of like had a very 
confident and clear picture of the future a few years out, which is a lot of organizations having mobile apps that they don't have right now. So for us, custom mobile apps, um, doing that was a way to understand what it took to deploy an app, what makes a good app and not. And so once we got a really good handle that we were able to validate that um, organizations do want custom apps. And in fact, here are a few markets that tend to have very similar needs around what they need in a mobile app. Why don't we actually switch from a custom agency kind of services um, model, which is charging a big upfront fee one time and very, very little sort of retainer or ongoing to actually the opposite, um, which is nearly no upfront sort of set up one-time cost and everything being a recurring uh, subscription uh, revenue expense. Um, and, and so once we were to sort of validate the idea in a, in a cheap and profitable and cash flow positive way through the custom mobile app, we decided to productize it and, and start a business um, off of that. And um, yeah, that was an interesting shift. Um, you know, most companies don't survive the shift from a services company to a software recurring revenue company because we literally went from closing 80K deals uh, with uh, 30, 40%, you know, 50% profit profit to the bottom line to closing an account that would be 12,000 a year. And that, that about the 80,000 is one time, right? We would land it, sort of deliver it once and that's it versus closing a $12,000 account for a year with the current recurring revenue. And it turns out that if we could deliver that 80K app in a quarter, that means that we could recognize a full 80,000 in that quarter. And it turns out that if you close a $12,000 deal as a recurring revenue service, you can only recognize 1000 of that revenue each month. Uh, and so it feels like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a harsh transition because you're going from, um, from these big one-time things that are sort of cash flow, um, uh, rich to, to this sort of recurring revenue business model that has inherent the physics of SaaS are such that, um, with high growth, cash flow positivity becomes, uh, uh, near, nearly impossible when you hit growth rates of up to upwards of 60%. So anyway, uh, that was a little bit of our initial uh, journey. And then to, to, to finish off with Amplify, uh, the way that we figured out uh, our pricing model for Amplify is, is really we wanted to tie our value. So the price that we charge, the value that we were delivering to the, mm -hmm. to the our customer and the, the value that we're delivering is a, is a more engaged employee um, for a company. And so we charge per employee per month. Um, the more employees, the more a company is going to be able to, to, to get more value um, uh, from those employees. And so it's still a recurring revenue service, so very much like Bluebridge, um, the second iteration of Bluebridge, and, um, and, and really tying our pricing to the value that the customer was getting. That way, our incentives are aligned, uh, the companies and the customer. I, I would love your perspective, Tom, having worked with several different types of businesses, several different business models and, and revenue streams. What is special about the recurring revenue model uh, and, and why is that so powerful? Why are software companies going towards that sort of subscription every month you're collecting revenue uh, from a company as opposed to maybe charging a larger upfront fee? Right. Um, and, and then what are some of the drawbacks of that? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I think the obvious one is it's it's an annuity model where you know you just keep building, and obviously you're going to have some churn in there, but you're going to you're going to add to it, and it's more predictable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the that's the most appealing thing to folks is that you know you can you can see it and you can uh, predict what your revenues are going to be. Um, you know, so that's I, I guess that's the that's the obvious answer for me. Yep. When you're when you're looking at uh, at these software companies that are 
uh, doing the SaaS model. Right. How do you, what do you hone in on to make sure that they're doing it in a way that is going to give them the um, sort of, you talk about the annuity model, is going to create a snowball as a, at a larger and larger snowball as opposed to like a snowball that might be melting right. because they're not building their financial base with, with how they're charging. Well, churn is the thing that I look at. Okay. You know, I mean, talk, your, talk to me about churn. Yeah. So churn is, you know, losing customers. And so mm-hmm. at what rate are you losing customers? And obviously you want to be gaining more mm-hmm. than you're losing every month. But uh, even even if you, you're doing that, but your churn is too high, you're, you're going the wrong way. So I think, you know, that's one of the things that I really look at with early stage companies is, you know, what's your churn? First of all, are you measuring your churn? Mm-hmm. You know, do you understand what the term is and are you measuring it and are you paying attention to it? And then are you drilling down on it? So, you know, if you have a churn rate that is going up, are you, are you drilling down to understand the reasons why? And that, that, you know, it's one of those cases where the financial metric will drive the operational discussion. And I think that's critically important that you, one, you measure it and you pay attention to it, and then you ask the right questions to make sure you're fixing the problems. Are there some key ratios or variables that you can kind of say, I, I mean, to the point about six, uh, you know, sales folks to one manager is a variable and that's generally constant. Maybe it's, yeah. a, you can have a few more salespeople to managers or a few less, but in general, it's around one to six. Is it, is there something in terms of churn that, that you look for, um, you know, not really. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it depends it, on the price. It, it really does. It depends on the pricing. It depends on the business. It's uh, I've seen you know churn rates that are all over the board, and you know some of them can be double digits, and that can still be healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, it just depends on the industry. So, um, I guess the first thing that I try to do when I uh, engage with a client that is in the SaaS business is understand their business and understand right. their industry, and um, look at what benchmarks are appropriate, you know, for their industry, yep. and then help them measure to that. And that's, that's one of the things that I think, you know, is really important for early stage companies to do is identify the handful of KPIs, you know, churn being one of them, um, that we're going to measure every month and put the systems in place to measure it and then, you know, have the right process to, you know, circle back as you measure it to fix things and yep. work and on improvement. I want to circle back to KPIs or key performance yeah. indicators. Uh, but Santiago, I'm curious to know... Um, a little bit about your experience with churn. Do you remember when you first started measuring churn? Uh, is that something you did from the start or is that something that you've kind of gotten more sophisticated at uh, as you've gone along? Uh, we, we did it from the start. Um, you could argue, there, there could be an argument made that um, churn is over a company's lifetime, the most important key metric of a SaaS business. Um, there's a stat out there that 80% of the lifetime value of any SaaS account is found post-sale. That means that when you sell that account for the first year for that initial term, um, you have only sort of captured one fifth of the revenue that that account is going to give you. Um, and, and in fact, SaaS companies many times spend uh, close to a year worth of revenue mm. to acquire a customer. And so if you are not um, renewing that customer at a high rate, um, you just don't have a business model. Um, and I think that's, that's one thing that I love about SaaS and why I was attracted to a recurring revenue business model is because it, it, it almost forces a customer focus because a SaaS business cannot exist without renewals. And so you can't just sort of hoodwink someone, sell them a bill of goods one time, get their money and then say, uh, good luck or, or not meet their expectations. Mm. As a SaaS company, that's why customer success has become sort of this entire cottage industry of solutions and software and consultants because it's just such a key lever uh, for a SaaS company. So I definitely remember starting measuring it from the very beginning. 
And uh, at the time we were trying to achieve product market fit and we're doing all these experiments. Um, and so it was a really good input. Hey, customers in this market are renewing at this rate at 90% and customers in these markets are re renewing at 80%. That, that becomes an interesting data point for decision-making that maybe if customers over here are seeing a lot more value and are already renewing at such high rates, maybe we should plus one uh, this and put some more of our investments over here and a little bit less over here because clearly, um, uh, you know, that's happening. The other thing I'll note is that um, revenue retention or churn or attrition or whatever we want to call it, um, it, it's a bit of a lacking indicator. Um, so I think the other thing to, to, to keep in mind is um, the best way to almost inform business decision making is having being really clear on what that lagging indicator is, but having really good leading indicators that way before customers leave actually flag that there's a problem uh, soon enough that they can actually be addressed. Could you give me an so, example of a, a good leading indicator? For sure. Um, so for us um, at Amplify right now, um, you know, if you, if you look at our uh, lagging indicator um, being uh, customer renewals, uh, one of our leading indicators for example, are uh, we actually ask after every quarter, we deliver a set of engagement insights, the leader, typically the CEO of the head of HR. And we, we go to them and we say, um, hey, here's what your employees, we surveyed them and we got 80% participation, 90% participation. Here are some of the themes that they said. And we go through the entire data, help them interpret it and all that. And um, uh, at the end of it, we actually asked the, the whoever the economic buyer is, whoever's sort of going to sign the check for renewal, we asked them one to 10, how valuable were those engagement insights? We try to ask it at the same place in every single results delivery call to that same economic buyer and said in the same sort of way, that question. And that helps us understand did that leader get value today from our solution? It, that's that's an example of a bit of a maybe more qualitative, subjective type of a leading indicator. But certainly, if they keep scoring us on their first quarter a three out of ten, and the second quarter a two out of ten, hmm. we don't have to wait till the renewal event to know that that account is at risk, and that we ought to dig in and understand how we can add more value uh, to them. So that's a good example of sort of a leading indicator um, to to. That, that, that points to what to do about this lagging indicator in the future. I, I, I'm really glad we're digging in on this because I think, um, you know, we're all entrepreneurs here. It, it, we're honing in on uh, sort of how do you maximize the market opportunity? How do you maximize um, your current customer base and make sure they, they stay happy as you add more customers? And we can get into some sales generation things here in just a minute. But I, I, I want to make sure we call out that this is sort of the assumption that there's a huge unlimited addressable market, right? That, that your company can continue to grow and grow and grow because there is this huge and, and unlimited addressable market. I'd love to talk uh, back up just a little bit and, and zoom out and say, how do we even decide that there's a big market opportunity here or there's, there's a really big company to be made? And I'm gonna toss that up to whoever would like to dive into that one. Um, yeah, so there's an interesting, there's, it's, it's a complex question um, because on the one hand, the right way to start a business is to have a very narrow target market that have sort of similar needs and be maniacally focused on delighting those customers um, and making them really happy. And what you want to do is you want to constrain that focus to be as almost as narrow as possible so that you can actually build a thing that's truly going to exceed their value expectations. 
while at the same time you're raising money and you need to show this big total addressable market and you also have aspirations to create a big company so you also want this huge total addressable market that's you know has a has a b next to it in the billions <laughs> so it's a really interesting sort of um dynamic because if you just focus on we're going for this huge massive market of of 1 million accounts and that's our target market is 1 million possible customers for an early stage company you're going to get lost in trying to find problems to solve for a million businesses right because they're just their needs are going to be so spread out all over the place so uh, the approach that we took and that's certainly not not a perfect approach but we looked at it from both ways and and, and m accounting helped us size this uh, kind of taking a bottom up approach and then a top down approach could, so could, for example could go ahead i was going to see if if tom might be willing to talk us through the you you talked about the top up a lot of entrepreneurs approach it from that top up I, was, I think it'd be really interesting to hear your perspective. I, obviously, I would love to hear your perspective, Santiago, but I think from the perspective of working with all these different companies, right. how to actually look at that bottom up yeah, so, model. you know, I think Santiago was exactly right. I think you got to do it both ways. Yep. I think you have to almost start from the top down and say, you know, how big is this? And is this a market that's worth going after? Yep. Um, so I think it starts with that. But then when you get into the planning phase, that's when I think you got to go bottoms up. And mm. that, that, that just makes sure that you're thinking of everything at the right level. And it's going to force the, the, the discussion to make sure that you've covered everything and thought of all the angles. And, and so bottom up would be more like, looking at your current existing metrics saying a cost of acquisition right, right now is this meaning uh we put in this much money right we're going to have this many customers right. through these various revenue channel or these various marketing channels and then the lifetime value of a customer is this so we know that overall we're going to be making money hopefully right making money That's on exactly this exactly right so measuring things at that level so you yep. can really analyze is this a, a business model that makes sense and will it scale yep right and, and and santiago when you were building out the that model for amplify what got you excited about that model enough to for you and mitch to say let's let's do this all the way Sure. Uh, on the Amplify side, we, we didn't struggle at all doing the top down because <laughs> right? um, it's just, you know, millions and millions um, of, of workers uh, around the world. Yep. Um, and are you trying to address any kind of worker anywhere? We are not. Uh, we absolutely are not. You know, as we grow, uh, we'll sort of keep expanding the circles uh, that we're targeting. Uh, but for example, why is it important um, to start narrow? Uh, because of scarcity, uh, scarcity of resources. You just cannot meet the needs of all customers everywhere. And if meeting their expectations is key to renewals, and if renewals is key to a, a SaaS business model, then exceeding expectations is the leading indicator of the success of a SaaS business model. And with limited software engineers uh, and, and customer success folks, you have to figure out where to focus and start. The smaller that you start, the, the, the better you can solve uh, their problems and the happier that you can make them and you have to balance going as small as you possibly can with meeting growth uh, um, expectations and aspirations and, and that balance is is uh is one that every entrepreneur uh, has to to, to to struggle with and, and figure out and, and wrestle with so know, I, the, I, the the, the entrepreneurs ahead. that i've seen struggle or the SaaS companies i've seen struggle are the ones that try to do too many things so i i completely agree with santiago's comment that you got to you got to start narrow and try to you know work with a manageable you know set of expectations and a manageable, manageable set of customers to to start and then grow from there as you conquer that then then kind of expand the circles how do you decide on which segment is the right segment to go for i mean is it is it um 
which one's easier to acquire? Is it which one's more profitable? Or is it is it the one that has the bigger addressable market in the long run? Great question. It's probably probably a combination of all three. <laughs> it, it really is. I'm, I'm here to ask the unanswerable <laughs> questions. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think more one and two. Uh, it's it's where can you get customers and where you keep working you deliver value. And if you do that for a small segment, there's typically most markets have adjacent segments that you can keep expanding into it. So in the very first few days of Amplify, we were uh, companies. I'm not going to share all the criteria, but imagine one of the attributes for a target market being companies 50 to 300 employees in size. It's a very sort of narrow specific, but we got really good at being able to serve their needs. And then as we sort of nailed their needs and we're exceeding expectations, then we start to say, let's do, you know, 40 to 500 and then 30 to a thousand. And then instead of just Indianapolis, let's expand it out to the Midwest and then go national at that mid market. And then once we land that, then we'll begin to think about how do we go up market even more and just doing that in a very sequential, disciplined, uh, and specific way. And every single other side of the business aligning to that strategy. And so sales at marketing is, is generating leads in that 50 to a thousand. I'm making these things up, right? But marketing is generating leads in that 50 to a thousand sales gets really good at hiring reps that can sell to organizations of that size product is ignoring customers that are outside of that, not ignoring them, but really focusing their discovery on what to build on that specific set of customers. And the more that a CEO can, a leader can, can align the entire company to sort of execute the strategy on that narrow base of customers, the higher likelihood I think you have of, of actually delivering the promised value to those customers. That's great feedback from a product development standpoint. I, I think um, I think it's interesting to look at companies that see the total addressable market. They say, you know, the XYZ industry, uh, the mobile industry is, you know, however many billions of dollars. Uh, or employees, if every employee just gave us $100 a year um, and all we need is 2% of that market and we'll be a $100, billion, you know, $100 million company you know, in the next two years, and that's only 2%. <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you accurately uh, gauge what percentage of the market that the company can actually capture? Um, because the, that, that sort of top-down approach uh, it seems to be like the thing that is going to get an entrepreneur laughed out of a boardroom with potential investors or is going to get people laughed out of uh, a boardroom of potential business partners. Um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think you got to you got to avoid the hockey stick, the unreasonable hockey stick. Everybody, yeah. every every plan I've ever seen has a hockey stick, but you you got to put a plan in place that is achievable. And I think when you we talk go back to you know uh, doing your plan at a very detailed level, I think it, if you do that and you do it right, I mean you think about your people plan and your operations plan and the sales team it's going to take to support it as you as you cover all of those elements, I think it, it grounds you in reality. You start to realize, okay, there's all of these different things that have to come together to be able to achieve that, that level of sales. And if you're doing it right, it, you kind of, you know, keep your, your plan more realistic, you know, versus just the top down. We, you know, like you said, it only, the market is this big, all we need is 2% of that. And we can sound, <laughs> 2% sounds like a small number. We can do that. Um, but when you really dig into the details and you start, you know, laying out what kind of team is it going to play, take to do that? You know, what, what kind of sales effort is it going to take to do it? What kind of operational support are we going to need to get there? You, you put all those things down and all of a sudden it, seems like much more of a daunting task to get to 2%. <laughs> so I think it's that detailed level of planning that helps you 
put a reasonable plan in place. How do you balance, uh, and I, I ask this with full knowledge that you were CFO with Scott Jones, the, the <laughs> hockey stick growth vision uh, for, the, for the business right. with the realistic um, and maybe even um, erring on the side of caution with a financial model right. to make sure that you're not uh, being overly optimistic right. uh, so you don't under-deliver to your investors. Right. How, how do you find that balance between you know, showing we, the big vision and I, I hockey like to, stick I growth? always do three scenarios. Okay. So I do kind of a, a downside scenario. Um, you know, what, what's you never say worst case because there's, there's always something worse. <laughs> there's but always. You do a downside scenario, you do an upside scenario, and then you do here's our best guess. And I like to have mm -hmm. all of those, and I like to have them in my back pocket. You, you, you lead as you're raising money with here's our best guess. Here's what we think we can do yep. with 90% confidence. But when the investor is sitting across the table from you and they ask you, you know, well, what if, what, what if you're 10% off down on the downside, or what if you're, you know, 25% more than that? What, what does that mean in terms of cash requirements? You got to be prepared to answer those questions. So, um, you know, again, if you have a good model that has all the variables and you can play with it and do some sensitivity, you're prepared to answer those questions. That's really, really helpful. Uh, I, I think, uh, on the entrepreneur and leader side of that equation, you've got these three models. Maybe you've got 17 models of, of different scenarios of how things could play out, right? Um, how do you decide to communicate that to your, uh, let's say, leadership team, Santiago? Are you presenting the worst case scenario? Are you presenting the best <laughs> case scenario? Are you presenting the best guess? Because I, I know there's there's a fine balance there right. between you know, presenting the opportunity and the exciting big number that's going to get people pumped and ready to go. But you also have to balance, you know, can we actually achieve this? Because if we, if we hit 25% of our goal, because we presented the hockey stick growth <laughs> version of the plan, uh, we're always going to feel inadequate. We're always going to feel like we're not living up to the leader's vision. How, how do you make those decisions, Santiago? Sure. Um, so I, I wouldn't think about presenting the plan to my leadership team at all in, in the sense that they would have been so involved in the beginning of the process, um, forming the assumptions for every single one of their business functions that at the end when I'm presenting it, everybody already knows uh, sort of what it is because they've all been involved. I think um, one, of, one of the key things that the CEO has to do is, is bring all the right players to the table because at the end of the day, it, it, the business is a team effort. And uh, ideally, if you're great at hiring people, you are hiring people that are better than you uh, in every single one of their functions. Your VP of sales is better, uh, is a better VP of sales than you are, and, and so forth and so on in every single uh, one of the, uh, in every single business function. And so um, I think it's it's engaging each of those leaders really really early on and and, and trying to dream with them what's realistic, what's possible, and what's a stretch. Um, joining each of those assumptions from from every single function, and then starting to 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 to, to get a feel for that. I think the other thing to know is um, I almost kind of see it, think about this, and I've heard Jason Lenkin refer to it this way in the sense that you kind of how far can you see in the fog? You know, you, you can sort of see very clearly, you know, uh, two inches ahead of you in the very beginning. You can't see that far ahead because you don't have that much track record. And then you start to execute a few quarters, and all of a sudden you can really start to intelligently plan six months ahead. And then you do, you get a year under your belt, and you can actually plan and know what the next year is going to look like. I and mean, then once you're a 10 year, you know, established company, you can actually make a three and a five year plan. But being three weeks into a startup and trying to make a five year plan, um, 
it's just full of wild guesses and to some degree is, is almost a useless exercise um, versus trying to figure out really what's the right time frame that we should be thinking about here. Um, and, and sometimes fundraising and financing can begin to give you that, that, that you know, if your cash is going to run out in, in a year, well, it might be good to get a two-year plan in place so that you know <laughs> how you're going to get to that to that date and then how much you're going to need to raise right after uh, in order to, to to know how much you need to raise and who you need to raise it from uh, and all that. Well, I, I think we've touched on a lot of really interesting points here. The financial model, having these various plans, having the leadership team uh, to get you through. The, all of those things are going to help you raise capital, which is going to obviously give you that fuel to grow your business in a way that you could potentially have an exit. You're going to IPO or you're going to get acquired by a company. What are some of the, and Santiago, I know you've sold um, a portion of your business off. Uh, you sold off the Blue Bridge side of the business. And, and Tom, I know you're involved with many, many acquisitions uh, for, for companies in, in various roles um, in that sort of like CFO or CFO for hire role. Right. What are some of the things that companies need to be thinking about to position themselves to get acquired or to IPO? Yeah. So um, from my perspective, this is in my sweet spot. So I'll, I'll talk to this first, but yeah. um, having your financial house in order is, mm. is a big deal. Um, so many nice decorations. And yeah. <laughs> so, you know, making sure that, you know, your financial statements are in good shape. Those are clean. You have financial projections, you have a dashboard. Um, you, you, it's credibility building first mm -hmm. and foremost. I mean, so somebody that's coming in to look at your business for a potential acquisition and they see that, you know, this is how I run my business. You know, I have a dashboard with key, you know, KPIs that I look at on a regular basis and I use those to support decisions. That's, that's a big deal to somebody buying it because that tells them that this is a well-run company, mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's the, the first thing. And I would also say that, you know, when your financial house is in order and you're doing things the right way, it impacts the valuation that you get on the back end. I've seen it. I've experienced it firsthand. Those folks that, that don't do that, that are sloppy, you know, they, first of all, they may not even sell the business. Second of all, you know, if you're, if you're doing it right, you're probably going to, you are going to get a higher number in the end. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it goes back to the quality of management and their confidence in management. It's, it's just going to instill more confidence into that potential absolutely. acquirer, potential investor if it's an IPO. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, Santiago, anything you, you want to add there um, in terms of what, what has helped kind of position? It, it doesn't necessarily even have to be on the financial side of things um, that positions a company well for getting acquired. Sure. Uh, you know, there's there's literally hundreds of things. Um, the, sure. the main thing is... is is, is should be obvious, I think, which um, is, is just solving a really important problem um, for, for the customers that you have. And that's going to yield itself in growth rates. It's going to yield itself in, in customer retention rates. Um, and so that's, that's really like the main thing is to actually be delivering real value. And then all those lagging indicator metrics will fall into place and be, 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 be really good. Um, one of the thing um, that kind of a tactical thing is making sure your contracts are in order. So just like the financial house is important, making sure the legal side is important, uh, ensuring that the company actually owns the IP, the intellectual property. Uh, many times um, an entire deal will fall through because the company cannot actually credible, credibly rep uh, to the buyer that they fully own the IP. This, this one employee actually may be able to lay claim uh, to the IP or it's, it's based on this non-proprietary, you know, uh, foundation on the tech side. And so really minding those IP issues um, early on and making sure that the IP is rock solid, both from an employee agreement perspective um, and also from a customer contract 
uh, perspective, right? If if uh, if, if customers um, have uh, you can't assign the customer contracts to somebody that buys your company, that buyer is going to say, "Wait a second, you actually literally don't have permission from your customers to transfer your customer contracts to me." And so what we're going to have to do if we acquire you is we're going to have to first go to each customer and get them to re-sign their contract for them opting in that they can actually have their contract be assigned. Well, you know, how how crazy of an initiative is that going to be where you have to go back to every single one of your customers say, hey, we're getting acquired. So, but it can't happen until you sign this. And then, you know, that that's just going to be a mess. Um, so I think those those two things sort of like legal um, is a, is a, is a Something that maybe founders isn't the sexiest thing to think about, but ultimately can have some real effects on the success of, of the eventual transaction. It's been really cool to know you through a lot of your entrepreneurial journey, Santiago. And, and one of the last questions I wanted to ask you is, why is it important to you to be a lifelong learner? Because every time I talk to you, we, we end up talking about some new book you've read or some new <laughs> thing you learned from a, a mentor uh, of yours, uh, what is it that that gives you that uh, thirst for new knowledge, and why is that important? Sure, um, for me, it's it's is I have to as a leader, I have to grow faster than the company is growing, um, because the, the company as it grows, it demands higher and higher levels uh, of leadership, um, and I have to keep up with that pace and actually try to stay ahead of that. Uh, pace if I want to continue being the best possible leader that I can be for the company and for the team. And so, you know, for example, um, I hadn't ever fundraised a single dollar before. And uh, and here, you know, we needed to, to, to raise a million bucks uh, for the first time. And so it was an all out sprint for me to, um, especially as if something doing it for the first time, you have to you know, just jump right in into the learning aspect if I want to continue scaling as the business scales uh, and, and and staying ahead of what the company needs from me. And, and that's that's an ongoing pursuit. And, and that's a tough thing to balance. I think I think a lot of CEOs and leaders try to figure out how much professional development and investing into me should I be doing when the demands of the business of my inbox and of my daily and meetings are, are so um so intense. And I think that can many times you can fall prey to the tyranny of the urgent that um, not investing uh, in yourself as a leader to make sure that you're the best possible leader that you can be uh, for your team and for the organization, I think is, is of tremendous importance. And especially for me being um, a younger CEO, right? And, and, and being the first time that I've um, led a company of this size and of this complexity, it's even more important um, for me to be learning really, really quickly um, because I, in, in some cases, I don't have the luxury of experience and wisdom. Um, I'm having to make really good decisions with never having made that decision before. And I think the more experience and the more wisdom that you have, maybe the easier those things get. But if you don't have that, then the only thing that you have is just trying to learn faster. It's clear just being in your office, talking to some other members of your team. Obviously, they've onboarded us with using, uh, using the app that you guys built for us. Um, you've got an awesome culture there. I know you're a thought leader in, in culture. I would love to have you back on the show sometime, maybe to talk a little bit about building a great uh, team, a great culture. Uh, I know you've got a book out. Um, you want to talk a little bit, you know, maybe just give a, a quick shout out where people can find your new book. Sure. It's called Agile Engagement. I wrote it with uh, Todd Richardson, uh, who's an HR pro of of, of many decades and, and has done has built an amazing culture at a world-class level. And, and the main thing that we wanted to solve with the book was... Um, 
most leaders, if you ask them how important is culture and engagement in your talent, they say, oh my gosh, it is so important. It's a top three priority. And if you ask them how many of you actually uh, measure your engagement uh, and how many of you have a stated strategy for culture and engagement, uh, most CEOs say, I actually don't. I'm trying a bunch of things, but I don't really have a strategy and I don't have a way to know. I don't have any leading indicators for my culture. Hmm. And so that, that's what we sort of set out to solve is, is helping leaders uh, give them a framework and based inspired by the agile methodology and software development, sort of merging agile and culture and trying to figure out, um, give, give leaders of, of any size company a framework to figure out what is that five point or three point or two point strategy of how this year they're going to take their culture and their employees engagements at the next level. Um, and then, so that's, that's what we uh, tried to solve. And um, it's, it's been uh, really great to, to be able to sort of share those lessons and, and those learnings uh, with folks all around the world. I'm, Matt, let me put a plug in for the book because yeah. I'm, I'm reading the book myself. Okay. And it's, I, I, I have a copy. It's just in my book backlog. So I, I'd love to hear there your you perspective. Go. So I'm not it. done with it yet, but I've, okay. I've started it and it's fantastic. And I would highly recommend it to anybody leading or, or an organization. They need to get their hands on it and read it. So well done, Santiago. Awesome. Awesome. Thank I can't you, wait to read it. And obviously check out Amplify as well at Amplify.com. Um, and Tom, my last question for you is... Uh, if you're talking to an entrepreneur that maybe doesn't have their financial house in order, right. if you're listening to this, if you're watching this, or if you're thinking, maybe even you're thinking about starting a company, um, it can seem kind of daunting, right? As, right? as an entrepreneur who had no idea, I was, <laughs> I knew that if I sold enough things, if, this is my first company, when, right. when I was working on my first company, if I sold enough things, the rest would kind of work itself out. Right. And, and it was a mess for the first year and a half until I really started focusing on the financials. When you're talking to an entrepreneur that's in that stage, right. um, what would be your words of encouragement to get their financial house in order? You know what I would say? Surround yourself with really smart people. Go go find an advisor or two, folks that have been there, that have done that, that can help you. Don't be so proud that you you got to know all the answers. You know, yeah. um, There are a lot of people out there that can give you some good advice and can help you build the financial model or help you make the introductions to the to the potential investors or just, you know, tell you how your pitch deck should come together, whatever it is. I mean, there's a lot of folks that have been there that can offer really good advice to you. So take it, you know, in my, my experience has been that most people are very willing to help, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, sincere entrepreneurs that really want to build something. People love to help, you yeah. know, so ask them, use, use them. Well, I, I have a quick plug on you, Tom. We've been working with Emma County now for a couple, just a couple of months. Uh, but the amount of insight you've been able to give us in such a short amount of time have really informed how my business partner and I have uh, directed the business and directed our energies over the last couple of months. And we're already seeing some of the fruits of that that intention and that having a dashboard so that we're not flying as blind or by our gut yeah. as, as we previously were. So I, I want to give a hard shout out to Emma Accounting. Thank you. Um, obviously, emmaaccounting.com. We've actually put together a resource here in the last couple months that we've gotten a great response from. Yeah, the cheat sheet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we put together this cheat sheet. We'll link it up in the show notes here. I'll make sure I drop it in the comments of the Facebook post too so you can check it out. But it's a free resource. Um, sort of a financial checklist pre-fundraise. Uh, so if you're thinking about fundraising or even just being fundraising ready, in, in my mind, being fundraising ready means having your business in the best state it possibly can be from a financial team and, and, and culture standpoint. Um, that That's really what you need in, in order to raise capital. So I, I want to thank you for authoring that for us. Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure. Hey, thank you both, uh, Santiago and Tom, uh, for sharing your wisdom here, sharing your stories. Uh, hope to have you guys both back on the show at some point or another. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. That wraps up our conversation with Santiago Jaramillo and Tom Gabbert. You can find them, of course, at mAccounting.com and Amplify.com, their respective companies. They're very active on social as well, and you can find their social handles in the show notes at powderkeg.com. Again, this is episode number 35, so you can navigate to it that way. And of course, make sure you are following us on Facebook because we're going to be doing these live streams again. So you can find us again at facebook.com slash powder keg. Follow us again. That is facebook.com slash powder keg. And one more time for that financial checklist I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. It's a really handy resource, very simple to follow. It's only a few pages, but it is the most important things you need to be thinking about from a financial standpoint as a leader or as a founder of a company. So make sure you grab that. Again, that is at vergehq.com slash financial dash checklist. Now, again, we're going to have that in the show notes for the link, uh, but again, it is vergehq.com slash financial dash checklist. We're going to have some amazing guests coming up, so make sure you are keeping an eye out and subscribing, of course, on iTunes. That's at powderkeg.com slash iTunes.